0: Okay, morning and welcome, Uh, Wednesday, January 23rd, 2008, we're looking at the uh, Sermon on the Mount, specifically the Beatitudes, Um, but something caught my eye this morning. You know I was saying last week how useful it is to have more than one thing around you when you're having your quiet time, and sometimes you'll not look at them for six months or a year, and then you'll pick them up and they'll be so appropriate. This particular one is Streams in the Desert. Um, written many, many years ago um, by a lady called Mrs. Cowman. I think there must have been um, missionaries or something, don't you? Yeah. And for, for yesterday, it was so appropriate because I said to Joyce in the morning, I feel as if we're like, uh, you know when the, when the conductor goes and he's holding you for a pause? And I feel that we're in a pause at the moment and I opened this up this morning and this was what I read. There is no music during a musical rest but the rest is part of the making of the music. In the melody of our life the music is separated here and there by rests. During those rests we foolishly believe we have come to the end of the song. God sends us times of forced leisure by allowing sickness, disappointed plans and frustrated efforts. He brings a sudden pause in the choral hymn of our lives and we lament that our voices must be silent. We grieve that our part is missing in the music that continually rises to the ear of our Creator. Yet how does a musician read the rest? He counts the break with unwavering precision and plays his next note with confidence as if no pause were ever there. God does not write the music of our lives without a plan. Our part is to learn the tune and not be discouraged during the rests. They are not to be slurred over or omitted or used to destroy the melody or change the key. If we will only look up, God himself will count time for us. With our eyes on him, our next note will be full and clear. If we sorrowfully say to ourselves, there's no music in a rest, let us not forget that the rest is part of the making of the music. The process is often slow and painful in this life, yet how patiently God works to teach us, and how He longs, how long he waits for us to learn the re- lesson, by a man called John Ruskin, whose name is familiar but I can't think why, and then there's a little poem, called aside from the glad working of your busy life, from the world's ceaseless stir of care and strife, into the shade and stillness by your heavenly guide for a brief time you've been called aside called aside perhaps into a desert garden dim and yet not alone when you have been with him and heard his voice in sweetest accents say child will you not with me this hour stay called aside in hidden paths with Christ your Lord to tread deeper to drink at the sweet fountain head closer in fellowship with him to roam, nearer perhaps to feel your heavenly home. Called aside, oh knowledge deeper grows with him alone, in secret oft his deeper love is shown, and learned in many an hour of dark distress some rare sweet lesson of his tenderness. Called aside, we thank you for the stillness and the shade, we thank you for the hidden paths your love has made, and. St- And so that we have wept and watched with thee, we thank you for our dark Gethsemane. Called aside, O restful thought, he doeth all things well. O blessed sense, with Christ alone to dwell. So in the shadow of your cross to hide, we thank you, Lord, to have been called aside. And today's is um, Psalm 46.1, which is, is interesting. Uh, but I won't. Go- uh, the, the interesting part about it, which will relate to Joyce and she'll understand, the last bit says, your father is as close to you when you journey through the darkest tunnel as he is when you are under an open heaven. Mm-hmm. And your dream was a little dark tunnel, wasn't it? But there was someone there with her, going through it and then coming out the other end. <coughs> so lots of little snippets this morning this one uh, wisdom is the principal thing get wisdom we have tried to find out where this was well there's a name of a publisher I think Joyce wrote to the thing on the front but it was one of the little books that fall into our hands from time to time you know people pass us books on it's got no copyright on it uh, only know that it was written by a man called Keith Mason and it's deliberations really on um, attitudes proverbs and it um it just seemed to me to be appropriate really because day 22 and and 23 is proverbs 4 26 and 27 and is day 22 which was yesterday this what i was saying was last week that it's good to have little books around you because it leads you around in the morning your devotional time, your time with the Lord and it gives you a key in to what he's actually wanting to speak to you about. I had it the other day I've got a uh, journal that's got scriptures at the bottom um, and my eye t- lit upon the scripture at the bottom of the page and I went, that set me off looking at something else um, and I went off for ages looking at things and eventually I came to exactly the same scripture through a different route so I've gone in a complete circle and it was just exactly what I was saying I think to Carol that if you have these things around you the Holy Spirit himself will take you where he wants you to go. But if you're just stuck with your reading plan or your daily bread or whatever it is, it's so narrowing it doesn't give the the opportunity for the Holy Spirit to take you where he wants you to go. So I've got streams in the desert, I've got this one here. Um, I looked in the Daily Light, which some of you might know is very, very um, old um, scriptures for the day, every day of the year. The scriptures, morning and evening, um, they just key you in to what God is saying. So this one is Proverbs 4:26 and 27. Ponder the path of your feet. <laughs> it "Feet of your path, path of your feet," and let all your ways be established. Do not turn to the right or the left, remove your foot from evil. The book of Proverbs is not only concerned with right speaking, there is much instruction on right attitudes. We can often spot right away that something is out of the will of God because it ministers to the sense of self-aggrandizement. Satan began his trickery with the temptation to be more than we should be and this is his continual line of attack. At the heart of every sin is the desire to be something in ourselves and even self-abasement can be turned into an opportunity to magnify self. Solomon's wisdom says pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Better to be of a humble spirit with the lowly than to divide the spoil with the proud. Have you ever felt thoughts coming into your mind like self Lifting thoughts. I don't quite know how to describe them. Um, that 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 um, that sort of fire at you. Well, you know, people will think you're so clever, or something like that. And that's from the enemy. And I have to. I I I, I so often hear that sort of thought coming at me, and I'm I'm learning to just say, uh, I'm not having that. If that thought's my lord, forgive me. If it's if it's not, I'm not receiving it anyway. That is how you guard your thought life. You don't allow these things to come in. uh, Because that is where he will attack you, is in your thought life. Um, You know, to make you feel how important you are. You are important, but not in that sort of way. It's not in the puffing up sort of way. It's important in as much as you have significance because of whose you are. And you are so important to Jesus that he died for you. So there's no, th- th- but the other side of the coin is the satanic, which is just is self-aggrandisement, like the feel-good factor the world would say, you know, give me a few strokes. I remember someone phoned me once, as you said, oh, give me a few strokes. I'm feeling a bit down. I thought, what sort of language are you talking? I'll do no such thing. Oh, it's desperate, isn't it? When you get into the world's mode of doing things, and you're trained by the world for a particular job gonna pick up the parlance and find yourself operating in completely the wrong realm so this arrow of conviction this business about being um, of, a, of a humble spirit rather than haughty came to Peter when Jesus spoke the miracle catch Luke 5 8 for he knew himself at that moment to be worthless in the Lord's sight I think it could be the one where it says away from me Lord for I'm a sinful man luke 5 verse 8 i can remember i said this i said this to someone one of the elders at the at the community church that i had been sitting having my quiet time and i felt the presence of god so much that i fell on my knees and said away from me lord i'm a simple man and he and he looked at me as if he couldn't he couldn't understand yes it is When Simon Peter saw it, this is a miraculous catch. He fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Because Jesus knew what was going on in his heart, he was probably thinking, You're joking, we've been doing this all night. Who do you think you are? It's not going to happen. Ah. (laughs) Renew himself at that moment to be worthless in the Lord's sight, and yet there was more to come. Peter's pride had to be broken. And you know about uh, how Peter's pride was broken before the cock crows twice. You'll have denied me thrice. And uh, it says at the bottom here, Legalism has pride because it says self-effort can produce the works of Christ. The self-effort of Peter as a fisherman caught nothing on resurrection morning interesting little notes and then the next day day 23 Philippians 2 5 to 8 let this mind or attitude be in you which was also in Christ Jesus because we're looking at attitudes aren't we who being in the form of God did not count it robbery to be equal with God but made himself of no reputation taking the form of a servant he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death even death on the cross he says you know I've recommended that you read one of the books one of the chapters of proverbs each day because it is to me it's a brilliant book he says the book of proverbs constantly seeks for the motivation behind what people say and do is our attitude one of self glory or the glory of god alone in the gospels too jesus spent much time instilling basic lessons of selflessness into his disciples and he says read through mark 9:31 to 39 Luke nine fifty one to fifty six, and Mark ten thirty five to forty five in that order. So interesting. Just a um, an example, really. Thank okay. you. I picked up. Um, the King and you this morning because knowing that this is going to weave in with what we're looking at on the, the Beatitudes and just began to have a look and as I said before I'm getting to the place where I'll read one or two things and I just can't read on I'm just I am captured by what's being said and I have to think about it um, he talks about um, God wanting to set us free and page 22 there is something he's after in the life of every believer but a person cannot be set free if he doesn't know he's in bondage one can think he's free just because he's been released from some of the external such as cigarettes alcohol or drugs overt sin can be calculated in that way although it's a cause for rejoicing to be set free from four packs a day and two quarts a week (laughs) Jesus is after the internal areas as well and that was of course what the, the summer school was about regaining your inner territory. This realm has to do with our attitudes and motives and can be just as painful, if not more, in parenthesis mine as being released from an addiction. This is why many believers choose not to continue. Some believers prefer to pretend they are free. They may talk as if they were free impressing others as to their freedom. But only you and God know if you are really free. You know what your eyes do when girls go by or what happens when you're late for work and run every red light along the way. You know what makes your own emotional thermometer start, thermostat reach blow level. Only you know if you're free with your finances in your bedroom, etc. Very interesting remember we cannot be free if we do not know we are in bondage and there's someone that I'm trying to help at the moment and I'm thinking what is going on they consistently ring up and ask me to pray for peace and I'm thinking there's something underneath this that I can't see what it is um It's no good going for deliverance because they don't understand enough and they certainly wouldn't be able to hold it at the moment. And the Lord's not revealing it to me right now. But I suspect that part of it is that they do not realise they are in bondage. And until they understand that, I can't take them any further. And they want a quick solution, you know, they, they want concord. God wants camel. He wants relationship with them. And until they slow down and stop just wanting the plaster stuck on it and really mean business, uh, this is going to continue. So it's, it's, it's interesting what's going on with, with the church and in the church at the moment. And I looked at this bit this morning about desire and ability. Um, another objective he has in mind for us as we continue with him is that we develop the ability to do those things that please the Father. Our desire to please the Father and our ability to do so are two entirely different things Mm. and he goes on to say that it's the new nature from which our desire springs um, resulting in the ability as we continue in his word he begins to deal with our character resulting in the ability we lack to fulfill our new desire. Nature is given character is developed. And somewhere else he's he's spoken, and I don't know where it is, about the two things of in Christ and in the Lord. There are two different places positionally. One is in Christ positionally, like in Ephesians. We are positionally in Christ. But in the Lord is a behavioural thing. And I think it shows up in in, in, uh, Colossians and Galatians. I haven't looked at it this morning. But I think that's where it comes when he starts to list... You know, the things that we ought to do and not do when we're in the Lord. So there's there's two there's always like two posi- two places, like here desire and ability. And as um, Mike Bickle says, that God is not so much concerned with our ability to do something as our desire to want to be able to do it. He comes in behind our willingness. If he hasn't got our willingness, we'll go nowhere fast the whole thing the will is pivotal choices are pivotal he doesn't ask us to do this thing he asks us to align ourselves with his will because there's two wills at work in us now and he asks us to align behind his will so that the Holy Spirit can come in and do it like he said to me the other morning do you need a little help and yes I did and it completely collapsed me because that was exactly what I needed at that moment So as Christian character and maturity are developed, our desire to do God's will is turned into the ability to do God's will because of the new nature that is within us. It's the old black dog and white dog, Chappie. So, Lord, change my attitude before it's too late. We're on week three, and this week we are going to be looking at Criticism versus love. So the first scripture is 1 Corinthians 13 4 to 8. Love suffers long and is kind. It doesn't envy. Here we come. Does not parade itself, not puffed up. Does not behave rudely. Does not seek its own. Is not provoked. Excuse me. Thinks no evil does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. It's a little scripture we can probably almost all parrot by uh, rote, and yet it would take a lifetime to put it into practice. Because have you noticed with scriptures, they, they just hit the surface sometimes, like a bouncing bomb, they just bounce across the surface they don't actually touch anything uh, when you break that down um, i broke it down for next week's and i found 16 things that it didn't do so if we can work on those for the rest of our lives we'll probably be all right but this one is criticism And this week we're going to look at the critical attitude versus the attitude of love. Excuse me. We're going to see how our current thinking needs mid-course correction in order that we may become children of our father, blameless and harmless, without fault, holding out the word of life to a crooked and perverse generation, among whom we shine as lights in the world. That's a paraphrase of Philippians 2.15. That's the very the more version. So, attitudes defined. We did define them last week, I think, but it's always worth doing it again. We have seen that an attitude is a pattern of thinking developed over a number of years. Attitudes are patterns of thinking about a particular thing or situation where we consistently think the same way. These patterns of thinking are so deeply ingrained in our hearts that we hardly ever notice them. They often start very early in life, so much so that we get used to reacting in a certain way, that our choices become automatic or non-existent. We don't actually realise we're doing it. And in time we actually cease to see the fact that we have a choice. Do you remember I said about the little boy last week with the red ball and his attitude developing there? so we have to be active in this thing it takes time to replace bad thinking with good thinking. as i said just now uh, about how i will push thoughts away that will come to me i won't receive them not having that thought as bob Mumple would say i rebuke you devil (laughs) it's probably the holy spirit trying to tell you something Uh, so you have to be sure about who's telling who what Uh, But you know when it's a bad thought coming at you, when it's a negative thought and a critical thought and a judgmental thought. You can stop that thing. I'm not going there. I'm not thinking I'm going to have another thought. I'm not thinking that thought. Uh, And you do have to ask the Lord to deal with you severely and correct you ruthlessly because he will if you do. Otherwise, you can just go trundling along thinking that what goes on in here is all right. As Graham, I think, said on one of those... um, CDs of his um, when you were born again you didn't invite me into your head thank goodness you invited me into your heart because he said I don't like what goes on in your head Uh, you know and I've had the Holy Spirit say to me when my mind is going to go somewhere maybe perhaps um, examining the way I did something years ago and thinking oh, don't go there I've actually heard him say don't go there so I've not gone there Because to go there is totally pointless. Uh, Hindsight is the perfect judgment because you've then got all the facts and you can say, well, I would have done it this way if I'd known. Well, if you are put back in the circumstance again, you do it exactly the same way because you haven't got hindsight at that point. So, uh, you know, it's not a good thing to go backwards into old things like that to try to figure out what happened there. Don't go there. We choose our attitudes. And we've seen if we don't make choices we'll stay exactly where we are. Choices are absolutely pivotal to our growth. Never ever ever underestimate the power of choice. We need to see that what we have been believing or thinking is wrong and that we need to do something about it. So it's mid-course correction. We cannot defend the indefensible. We need to be mouldable and correctable. So our attitude determines not only altitude but outcome. What we choose has a direct bearing on how we experience something and a simple example I've given is well, last week um, when the vacuum cleaner seized up suddenly um, I immediately had choices to make because I knew that that would affect Joyce knowing that the cleaner had gone again and somebody else had been using it and it went pop. So I knew that I couldn't afford to be stressed by it at that moment because I had a teach to do. So I made the obvious choice. I can't influence this, I can't affect it. It's happened. I'm choosing peace. I'll address that issue when I need to. It's only a thing. Work it out later. People are so much more important than things. We can replace things. We cannot replace people. So Matthew 7.3 says Why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? The thing that will mark us out from other people in the age in which we live is that we do not criticise but seek to speak good of people. We live in a complete blame culture. There must always be someone to point the finger at so that there is the culprit there that we can say it was them. And uh, William Barclay says, and I'm still thinking about this, no matter what any man does to me, I will never seek to do harm to him, I will never set out for revenge, I will always seek nothing but his highest good. That's agape in action. It's a decision, it's got nothing to do with your feelings, it's a deliberate conviction, and it's a deliberate policy of life not easy to live up to that one I was reading something out to Joyce the other night about, and the person was saying how, how praiseworthy this was a commitment to each other and I said pretty well totally impossible to keep you know, I'll be there for you I will do this, I will do that I can promise you I will do this no, forget it, natural man to the natural man it sounds praiseworthy but it's actually coming out of Eros It's not coming out of agape. Because the agape love of God will manifest itself and demonstrate itself in the situation without having to make declarations and then keep at it. It's a way of life because it's Christ's life through us. He says, never will I fail you, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. Well, that's different. That's the word of God coming. But virtually what this was saying was that and I found, though I found I I loved a lot of Chip Ingram stuff, when I started listening to him about marriage he was trying, he was getting really worked up about the fact that he wanted his church to be the only church where marriages didn't break up and he was trying to squeeze a commitment out of husband and wife never to leave one another no matter how hard it got and I thought, the minute you lay that in there you're like tying them up and they will start to chafe against that which because it it is not it's not God he doesn't do that to us, so that he was putting them into a bondage, and he was making them come for, and i thought I can't listen to any more of this because it's it's so wrong The idea is good, but it's coming from the wrong source it's coming again from eros, and you get two people with eros love like that. Their hooks are like this, trying to hook into each other. What God is trying to do is to make our arrows straight, so that we meet, so that we're not hooking into each other. So it's it's, once you start to see it, you just see it everywhere. So, no matter what any man does to me, I will never seek anything other than this highest good. Okay, I don't think I can make that statement. I'd like to be able to. What he's saying is that love seeks the best for the object that's loved. And sometimes that will mean correction. In just the same way as you correct your children for their good. Love never criticises. It never seeks its own. Love seeks the best for the object that is loved. Correction is not rejection. And as we speak on this, it intertwines with our need to let go of our nearest and dearest. We cannot hold on to them. That's the Eros hook. And have their best interests at heart. That's Eros, not Agape. Because if we're honest with ourselves, we're holding on to them because of how it affects us. If they're not there or whatever. It's not actually their best interests we've got at heart. Underneath it all is ours. It's our Eros hook, holding them. I think I told you before I discovered this, long before I was a Christian, I recognised how selfish my love was. For Stephen, for Ken. It was me that I was concerned about. How would it affect me if anything happened to them? And I thought, I don't think that's too good, that. But I had no idea. I can remember thinking it, but no idea. I knew it was wrong, but I, I had no idea that, that there was another form of loving. The only thing I did do was, was bring Stephen up with the loving is letting go. So I've always let him go, consciously let him go, in, into his own identity into doing within reason when he was under my roof what um he wanted to do and needed to do remember when god was speaking to me early on l- just love him i'm thinking i am just loving him no just love him if i want to bless him that's my my affair you just love him <laughs> okay so when we come to the whole issue of criticism versus love we're going to have to be ruthless with ourselves and look at ourselves dispassionately and objectively not subjectively objectively means you stand back and look at it clinically and observe what's going on subjectively you're in there with your own feelings so we have to admit when we're seeking the speck in someone else's eye and overlooking the log which is in our own until we accept responsibility for our own attitudes, we will never be able to change. It's what uh, Bob Mumford was saying. Until we see that we are in bondage, we're not open to being free. Because we don't know we're in bondage. So we've been looking at the children of Israel in the wilderness and why they found themselves there. And Numbers 12 records one of the five events that led to God's decision to thrust them into the wilderness because of their murmuring. The numbers twelve one is where I want to go now. It says, I'll read a bit. Then Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Ethiopian woman whom he'd married. For he'd married an Ethiopian woman. And they said, Has the Lord indeed only spoken through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? And the Lord heard. Now the man Moses was very humble, more than all men who were on the face of the earth. Suddenly the Lord said to Moses, Aaron and Miriam come out you three to the tabernacle of meeting so the three came out then the Lord came down in the pillar of cloud and stood in the door of the tabernacle and called Aaron and Miriam and they both went forward and he said now hear my words if there is a prophet among you I the Lord make myself known to him in a vision and I speak to him in a dream not so with my servant Moses he is faithful in all my house I speak with him face to face, even plainly, and not in dark sayings, and he sees the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses?" So Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Cushite or the Ethiopian woman they married. had married. The words spoke against in the New Living Bible are tr- translated as criticized. Moses here needed someone he could rely on and right next to him his brother and sister are speaking against him. What he needed was someone to help him shoulder the burden but what he got was a pair who were not only critical but jealous of who he was and the calling on his life. Miriam and Aaron made some wrong choices. They looked at things with their natural eye, they didn't like what they saw and the result was criticism. Unfortunately, God heard it all. Very quickly and without warning, the leader they were supporting, their own brother, had become their target. We need to make the distinction that complaining relates to situations and criticism relates to people. Remember, we looked at a complaining and murmuring attitude before. So, complaining relates to situations and criticism relates to people. And negative thinking that relates to people is called criticism. And there are two types, destructive and constructive. The destructive type is based on our perception. We think about the perceived thoughts of someone with no view to their best interests. Why don't they do the things the way I do? Why can't they be more careful? Can't they see? Incidentally, no, they can't. If they could, they wouldn't so we are dwelling on the perceived thoughts of another with no view to their good. We are feeding our black dog and he's lapping it up. If we were thinking these things with a view to correcting what we perceived as wrong i.e. teaching them how to do something that would be constructive not destructive. I want to break down the word perceived. I looked it up on my laptop dictionary definition. Perceive. 1. Notice using the senses. To notice something, especially something that escapes the notice of others. 2. Understand or comprehend. To understand something in a particular way. Has a very interesting root. 13th century via Anglo Norman and the Old French variants of perçoir. P E R C O I. With a whatever you call that thing on the sea, I remember there's a word for it but I can't remember C-tino. that's it uh, c-o-i-v-r-e from the latin persepere literally to seize completely from capere to seize source of English capture so what you're doing when you perceive something is to capture something in your senses We are capturing something we have noticed with our senses, we have seized or picked up on something about someone else and that something is not good. Incidentally when God asks me uh, what I am seeing, he doesn't say what do you perceive? He says to me what do you see? Because that is often his question, you remember I think it was to Jeremiah, he said what do you see Jeremiah? And he says I see a pot boiling, tilting from the north, or I see an almond tree about to break into blossom. Then didn't say, what do you perceive? Perception is fallen, it's our fallen nature in operation, seeing something, adding two and two, making a judgement and resulting in criticism. So my perception is not necessarily good or accurate. It's important that my perception may not be accurate. I'm seeing it from my bias, from my point of view, and it is offensive to me. We're on our way to criticism already. In reality, we can become very critical of others and yet be entirely wrong in our opinion. As I've said here, I I see with my ears and I hear with my eyes. Because spiritual perception is totally different from fallen perception. Spiritual seeing is different. You see with your ears because you're hearing what people are saying and filtering it through the Holy Spirit, asking what's going on here. Lord, I know what I'm seeing. Isn't it? I've said it before, that I can have two people who are manifesting rebellious behaviour with one God will calls me to treat them like a piece of, of Dresden, China, and be gentle and loving, they're, they're actually showing exactly the same traits the same attributes, the same dif- recalcitrant behavior, they're showing exactly the same thing that'll be the doorbell <laughs> I expect there's flowers <laughs> um, uh, 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 they're, they're showing exactly the same But one is, is like Dresden and the other one is, is like, what's the, what's the absolute opposite? Just pottery, just clay, just clay. lump of clay. The one I have to give a jolly good kick to because they won't, they, they, they won't feel it anyway. Because <laughs> they're too solid. But the other one, it's the uh, Dresden China. So I have to be hearing from the Holy... I've got it happening to me right now. Uh, and, and as I say, on the surface, it looks. You, you, you think, oh, for goodness sake, let's chew their ear now. And that's enough of this. But as soon as I come to the phone, it's encouragement. You're doing fine, sweetheart. Just keep going the way you're going. It's God. See, what I'm, I must be seeing what he's seeing. Let's move away then from the issue of whether the faults are real or imagined or perceived or imagined which is existing only as an idea or thought or assumption, not reality because either way the attitude is destructive to us the key issue is the dwelling upon it some people are positive and encouraging, others are critical of people and their actions question for you do you walk through life saying to yourself that's not right, someone should have taken care of that that's not the way I would do it why do, do, why do they do that? They must know. If that's the way you think, you are dealing more directly with the dangers of a critical spirit than a person who is positive and encouraging in their outlook. Whether it's one fault in one person we look into, or we get ourselves into the place where we can't see anything right, we are in danger of the wilderness attitude called criticism. So back to Miriam and Aaron. On the surface, the criticism was of Moses' new wife. Underlying that was, has the Lord indeed only spoken through Moses? Has he not spoken through us as well? And the Lord heard it. Moses' wife was the surface issue. Underlying that was, how come Moses is the big cheese around here? Who does he think he is? Korah rebellion exactly the same. Who does he think he is? Every time that rebellion rises up the, un- the, the underlying question is who do you think you are? I'm as good as you. I can't do that. That's the underlying thing. So how come Moses is the big cheese? What about us? What about our place? There were consequences for the pair for this attack on Moses. God was saying, have you any idea who you are talking about? Someone I spoke to the other day uh, is is coming to see me from a church not too far away. And uh, he's been struggling with the issue of the leadership for two years now. But he said, early on the Lord said to me, don't curse the anointing. So he's been very careful not to say anything about the leadership. He's bottled and bottled and bottled it. And he's coming to see me probably to spill the lot and then get healed. But the fact is that whatever we think about whoever is placed in leadership, most of the time they're placed there by the Lord. And they actually carry the anointing. Oh boy, did I learn that. When Benny Hinn's brother, Henry Hinn, Mm -hmm came to Colin Urquhart, I'm just being reminded this. this, came to Colin Urquhart's um, Revival Centre, Joyce and I went, I think Lola went as well. And at the end of the evening he called us up to the front. Now I didn't like this man, this Henry. Didn't like the way he talked, didn't like his attitude, didn't like anything about him. Big lesson coming up, listen to this. As I went up to the front, I'm right in the front here where the the, the, uh, platform was. There, there. I saw this huge wave of, of oil, anointing, coming. And I'm waiting for it to come over me. It stopped. Right there. Never got it. On the way home, I'm saying to the Lord, why did that stop? you spoke against the anointing I couldn't go back and get it never got it never got what was on offer that night because of my attitude towards the man who was up there lesson so God was saying have you any idea who you're talking about this man is like no other I speak to him face to face and then verse 8 he says why weren't you afraid to speak against my servant against Moses they were probably thinking hold on it wasn't that bad we weren't being that critical we just pointed out a few flaws as we saw them nobody's perfect we were just pointing out a few flaws but the judgment of God on Miriam was swift and Moses the injured party ends up praying for his sister. I think it's in Mr McDonald's book he points out the fact that again it looks as though Miriam incited Aaron as uh, Eve was the instrument for Adam, Sarah was the one who incited Abraham to go and lay with his. So here we have the woman again seeing something, not liking it, and inciting the husband. It's just a thought that we women have got to be a bit careful about what we say to our husbands so that we don't incite them to do something that they shouldn't be doing. I think I'm raising this issue in what I'm talking about on Saturday. I'm not sure. In reading through my notes, I think it's there. So Moses, the meekest man and the injured party ends up praying for Miriam. It's an interesting bit of domestic scene that. It may be a sledgehammer to crack a nut but the principle here is that God doesn't like criticism of his children, any of them. The point here is that Moses is described as the most humble man on the face of the earth. doesn't mean you can criticize anybody else And you mustn't just criticise leadership. It means you've got to guard your thought life. And ask the Lord if what you are seeing is the way he sees it. How do you see this, Father? Is this how you see this? Because, as you know, I've said before, it scares the wits off of me when the Lord says, well, how do you see it? And I say to you, don't I know? Don't I know what I'm seeing? Now tell me what you're seeing. So I'll tell him, and he'll most often say, you see Right because I'm not looking with a view to criticism, I'm looking with a view to seeing. that's diagnostic, I can see that. How do I pray? How do I bring wisdom into this situation? Is it me to say anything or is it me to pray it? I can see this but what do you want to do about it? See there's a difference there between that and a critical spirit which actually makes you feel better. It puffs up the fallen nature particularly if you have a low self-image, you will criticise because that will make you feel better. Subtly, you will feel better. Which is completely denying the new DNA and the new nature that God has given us. It comes back to an awareness and an understanding of the exchange that was made the moment that we believed. Satan will do anything he can to keep you in your old nature anything you can feeding that black dog there comes a time when you really have to just turn your back on the thing and say I'm embracing what you did for me at the cross because what Jesus did for us at the cross gives us significance and self-worth without any other ways that the world look for that you don't have significance and self-worth because you're Articulate. You don't have significance and self-worth because you could do under words a minute short and yeah, whatever. Whatever it is, you put your own in there. Your significance and self-worth are because of whose you are and who you are now. You are a divine person. You've got the divine DNA in here. You have God in you. You get to choose whether you're going to line up with that old one or the new one. There ain't no choice as far as I'm concerned. The person I was, as I've said to you before, is dead. I don't own her. I don't recognise her. She has no part in my life. That's why I have got such a block about when Stephen says to me, well do you remember this and this and this? Well no I don't because that person's actually snuffed it as far as I'm concerned. She does not exist. I don't want her to exist. She was not nice. But the personality that God gave me still exists. But his character and his nature are being formed in me every day by my choices. You can choose to have a carnal moment, but you find less and less that you enjoy. If you make that choice, you won't have a carnal moment. Choice is always flesh or spirit. And for flesh you can read your old nature. Don't want it. Don't like it? Eat it. Do a Fandango on its coffin. Not worth it. So Moses is described as the most humble man on the face of the earth. Key. He was fully submitted to God. He knew God face to face. He was obedient. Aaron was quick to realise he shouldn't have lined up with his sister. He says, do not account this sin to us in which we have acted foolishly and in which we have sinned. Criticism comes into the category of sin, which is missing the mark of God's target, his best. So criticism, as if we didn't know it, is wrong and it carries consequences. This is why God says don't do it. You see, it's the consequences. For us, criticism affects our fellowship with God. It doesn't destroy the relationship, it interferes with the fellowship. He wants to be in constant communion with each of his children and sin will always have the effect of distancing us from him. Having a critical attitude towards your husband, your wife or your children doesn't affect the relationship. Your husband's still your husband, your wife's still your wife, your children are still your children. The attitude affects your fellowship with them. If you have a critical attitude, it's hindering your fellowship with God. Is your spiritual life like a wilderness? Dry, dead, cheerless and joyous, joyous, joyless? If so, it may be. It's because you've allowed a critical attitude towards a person or group of people in your life. It's a choice that not only injures your relationship with that person but also with God. And the way out is always the same. 1 John 1 verse 9 If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. To confess is to say the same thing. It's to agree with God. So it's easy to see that if I'm saying one thing and God's saying another, my fellowship is hindered and I'm the one who is wrong. You remember the business I went through with Stephen and Michelle over the Christmas time and into the new year, uh, where I knew I was the target for tonight. And and I was finding it very hard to not to be quite vindictive in my heart towards Michelle. I fought that one, uh, to bless her uh, and... Um, i actually asked the lord that it would die a death um that you know he was insistent on coming out with me and all things like that and giving me this dressing down and talking to after he hadn't spoken to me for about eight weeks or so and suddenly circumstances came about as you know where i had to zip up there because she wasn't well and then i'm doing one thing and another and it seems to have died a death and i'm thinking father I've still got my battle fatigues on but I've got a suspicion that this has actually, the prayer has been answered. Um. So, but I did, I I really struggled with it until God showed me the way he saw her and it's not the way I was seeing her, you know? So we've all got one, haven't we? The last thing is that criticism hurts us. Everything God calls sin, he calls sin because it hurts us. It's injurious to us. He's saying that goes against what I've made you to be. And research has shown that people who are habitual fault finders, constant critics of people and things around them, suffer from extreme tension and significant stress. That's in uh, Mr MacDonald's book, and he gives some uh, figures about it. Uh, This is is not a Christian um, (coughs) uh, examination. This is in psychology. This is how they found this. We weren't made to be like this. As I'm always saying, our bodies were not built for stress. God did not make Adam uh, to take stress, so that when the fall came and the stress started, death came in because the bodies that were created were not created to take the stress and we internalize it and so it affects us physically so the heart of the issue is the issue of the heart what's underneath all this? unforgiveness and bitterness fuel criticism criticism masks envy, jealousy or resentment and the third heart problem that lies under the covers of criticism is personal failure. People become critical of others because they are living in defeat themselves. And criticism is actually a major diagnosis of self-rejection. Because we have such a low opinion of ourselves, we criticise others in order, as I said before, to feel better about ourselves. Oswald Chambers said, beware of anything that puts you in the place of the superior person. what I started with wasn't it anything that makes you feel superior is not conducive to your spiritual life because essentially criticism is self-exalting look at Miriam so a couple of questions am I a critical person am I reaping the consequences in my relationship with God and others Am I willing to change my mind and heart? And I've got a prayer here. Father, thank you that your word has shone into my heart. Thank you for using it to reveal the price that I pay for my critical opinions. Forgive me for thinking so highly of myself. Forgive me for thinking that my perspective is always the right perspective and other people are always wrong. Father, I recognise the arrogance in that. Father, help me to enjoy the differences, not to see them as an opportunity to criticise. You have made us all different. Help me to celebrate this. I choose your way. Holy Spirit, help me to be quick to turn from this pattern of thinking. Show me how you see them, in Jesus' name. Amen. And next week we will be replacing a critical attitude with an attitude of love. Thank you.